The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Hey, hey, welcome to the Disability Law Show. Back once again this week. Loving it. John Scholes here along with Tamara Gopian, courtesy Samfiru Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Your disability reach out connection is Tamar anytime. Even if it's for a simple question, a lengthier chat or something you're just not sure about, if you're getting a lot of stress and strife, and panic from a, a long-term disability insurer that has done one of a million things to to cause that. Maybe they've cut you off. Maybe they've not accepted your uh, your disability claim, or maybe they've asked you to appeal for the billionth time. Nothing's going anywhere. You're treading water. You want to move on to the next step. You just need some knowledge, advice, and a roadmap. That's why you call tomorrow and your team. Anytime. There's no problem. Just to have a, an anonymous not a well an anonymous chat, sure, if you want, but just a regular chat. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disability rights.ca and for lots more information easy to digest about uh, the topic of ltd on your own time ltd faq.ca but we'll get into a bunch of emails they're already starting to stack up tomorrow and uh, some other questions as well but we always start off with a uh, case that you've been working on or a week that was sort of scenario what do you got going on this week pal well, yesterday I had a really interesting conversation with a woman who contacted us and I wanted to highlight her situation for our listeners today. And so she contacted us about her disability claim, but it had an underlying employment component, John. And of course, this is a very important feature of the work that we do at our firm because not only do we specialize in disability litigation, disability law, some personal injury work, as well as employment. That's the other big arm of the work that we do. And we see the intersection between these two areas of law so consistently. And her call, let's let's call her Joey just for sake of a name, right. um, really highlighted this aspect. So she's in her 40s. She's been working for a large auto manufacturer for almost 20 years in a fairly physical job. She's on an assembly line type position and had obviously had a lot of physical health issues along the way, a lot of wear and tear, uh, you know, that we see that a lot for people who've been working in that kind of setting for over two decades. And so she had been in the process of uh, seeking accommodations for a number of years uh, with her employer with mixed success, might I add. And uh, part of that was she was supposed to work certain shifts and not other shifts. And she had, you know, additional days where she could take off so that she wasn't working certain consecutive days. And, you know, over the years, she had had short-term disability leaves where she had taken less than six months off due to various health issues. One of the things was I think she needed surgery for her wrist. Anyway, fast forward to a couple of years ago, through the whole COVID mess. And of course, that really deeply impacted those kinds of work settings where people had to go into warehouses and factories and this kind of thing to work. And she started to develop some mental health conditions. And so those mental health conditions were also made worse by the work environment. So things, uh, her accommodations weren't always respected. She was shifted around into different positions. Um, she had colleagues uh, comment about certain things that were unpleasant, including her sexual preferences. It was pretty bad stuff that wow. she described to me yesterday, John. Yeah, and I, I don't want to get too, too much into it. Um, but needless to say, there was clearly a basis for not only physical restrictions for disability, but now you add on the mental health components of it as well. 
And so her doctor said, look, you're done. Um, you're not going to continue working. You need some time off. You need to focus not only on your physical well-being, but also your mental health well-being. So she started off on a short-term disability leave. In that period of time, the disability insurer was only administering her short-term claim, which we do see sometimes where the insurer is what's called an ASO, an Administrative Services Agreement or Organization, and they look at the disability claim for the employer, and if they feel that it meets the test of total disability, they will either approve or, of course, deny, but the money would physically actually come from your employer in in that situation from the short-term disability claim. In any event, it luckily the insurance company approved her claim. But then as she was transitioning or should have transitioned from short-term to long-term, she gets denied. So again, we see this pattern because it once she would have transitioned to long-term, it's because the disability insurer would have had to actually pay the long-term disability benefit. So they give a whole, whole hard time with it. They say this is all work-specific. Um, you know, we think your job, your occupation that we're looking at for the total disability is this accommodated job, a whole host of things, and they give her a bunch of excuses and they deny her claim. She actually appeals, John, and she appeals and she appeals successfully because in her situation there was medical information that she had not yet provided to the disability insurer for them to make the decision to transition her from short-term to long-term. And so this is a rare instance when the insurance company doesn't have a full picture. It can be a situation where perhaps you do submit other medical information and that may get you over that hurdle. Anyway, I give her a lot of credit for doing it. She was successful. It's not common. And she managed to get on LTD, but it didn't last long. Mm -hmm. So she's on LTD. She's on for a number of months, uh, I think maybe less than six months, when they start talking to her, to Joey that is, about returning back to work. And they're doing their pressure tactic, which is what they always do, which is, hey, look, you should be able to go back and we've talked to your employer and your accommodations are going to be respected and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. So we think you're good to go because, you know, we don't see any medical basis as to why you shouldn't be able to get back to work. And she resists that, of course. Um, She gets her family doctor to prepare a comprehensive report, which was excellent. I read it. Um, Really good report saying, hey, she is still absolutely symptomatic. Not only does she have the backdrop of the physical issues still with uh, and the, the mental health component as well, and there's an upcoming appointment actually with a psychiatrist. So I, as family doctor, want to wait to see what the psychiatrist has to say. So you cool your heels there, disability insurer. She's not going back to work right now. <laughs> and so that worked for a little while, John, and then it didn't work for a little while, right? So what the insurance company then ended up doing, you know, they're throwing everything, you know, at her, right? The next strategy was to get her a um, a rehab person, one of their own treatment their providers, own, yeah. Yeah. right, to do an assessment and to put a return to work plan in place. And so, again, they were not going to be deterred about getting her off claim. I think they were probably burned a little bit that they even managed to try and accept her from short term to long term. And, you know, she had the type of profile that we often see, which is there are periods of employability and followed by periods of not being able to work as a result of her health. And when you're in your 40s, these disability policies potentially pay you until you're 65 years old. And this pattern only gets worse with time when you've got these kinds of what I call constellation of health issues, mm-hmm. different things happening, all of which together prevent you from working. So. They were, they were hell-bent to try and get her off claim, so they put her in this rehab plan. 
of course she's not making sufficient progress. Um, you know, the program is geared towards um, therapeutic options that really are not responsive to her needs. So I think she, they had her set up with like an occupational therapist, John. And look, I'm not a doctor, but I can tell you if you've got like depression and anxiety, an OT isn't going to help you with that necessarily. Okay. The OT is really just there to get you geared up to get back to work. And so they had this plan in place and then she didn't ultimately return back. And so they denied her claim, not because she wasn't totally disabled, because apparently she wasn't being compliant with the policy. So now they say to her, well, our policy says that if we think you need certain treatment and you need to go down this path, then we're going to put you down this path. And if you refuse, we're going to tell you that you're not entitled to benefits on that basis. So look, this is where she came to us and she thought, you know, what else can I do here tomorrow? I've done everything that they've asked me to do, but my doctor is very clearly saying, not only to me, but to them, that I'm not capable of returning back right now, that we really need to see what the psychiatrist is going to say. Um, this doesn't seem right to me. And, you know, they're saying this is all workplace related, which, yeah, I mean, that's a component of it, but I still have ongoing health symptoms. So, I thought this was a helpful call to highlight at the top of our show because this is absolutely a situation where you do want to get legal advice. This is not one where you sort of throw up your hands and say, okay, I guess I'm done. I guess I'm going to have to put myself back into a work setting that caused me a whole bunch of issues to begin with. That is absolutely not the right approach, even though it's clear the insurance company was doing everything that it could or tried or was able to do to get her off claim. This screams out a legal claim, John. And not only can we deal with the disability side, there's also some significant issues with what was happening with her employer before she went on the disability leave. So I spoke to her, I think it was maybe an hour, and I went through all the different options with her and absolutely free consultation. She's, she and I are going to continue moving forward with this situation, see whether or not we can help her. But this is why we're so well suited to do it. Because right now, the primary issue is the health issue, right? Yep. So people come to us and they say, well, like, Tamar, I've got this employment side of things and I've got some disability issues. I'm like, which one do I do? What do I do? I'm overwhelmed. And we say to them, look, we're going to sort this out with you. It's okay. We've got this. And we've got this because we do this all the time. We are the experts in this area, um, us among, you know, perhaps other disability lawyers. But what we don't want to do is compromise either claim. And so you really do want to select the right lawyer to have the right analysis as to which of these claims do you proceed with first? What do you do? What makes sense in my specific circumstances? So if this is resonating with anyone out there who's listening, thinking, yeah, I've got a workplace setting issue, then I went off on disability, I'm having trouble with the insurer, having trouble with my employer, please, please don't hesitate to contact us. And we can make some choices around what makes sense. And I think You know, the cornerstone, though, John, really is Mm -hmm. the doctor, isn't it? You know, I really give credit to the family doctor to having rallied and supported her throughout all of this to have made the right choices about her and her health to put her off work at the right moments and say, okay, we need to now focus on your health. We're going to send you to a referral. We're going to figure out what's going on. And this is the time that you need. And that's what disability benefits are there for. And a good way to start, uh, my friend, we'll take a, a short break here, get back to lots more. We're going to break into those emails, as I mentioned. You want to send one along. If it doesn't make it on the show uh, this hour, might on a future show for sure. If you uh, if you don't mind that, if you want to read out and talk about help at disabilityrights.ca is how you do that. And going forward, the phone number for tomorrow and her team, one 821 
5,900. We continue just getting warmed up here on the Disability Law Show. We're coming right back. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we are back. Disability Law Show. Thanks for hanging in. John Scholes, Tamara Gopian, Sanfiru Tamarkin, LLP. To reach out to Tamar, which you probably will, or you have a friend, colleague, family member that needs some help in that regard, you can always make that phone call. Feel free, one 855 help at disabilityrights.ca. Or another way to ask questions online uh, for free and anonymously would be mydisabilityquestions.com. You can check that out. Uh, first email, tomorrow's Beth. Let's go. Says, uh, guys, after uh, almost six months on long-term disability with a herniated disc, the adjuster has requested I attend an independent assessment. I've been told it's necessary for this next phase of disability benefits. Do I have to attend despite my own doctor's and therapist's belief? I'm still unable to work. Tomorrow, what do you think? I've heard this story I before. really, yeah, I have heard yeah. this one before. And I really do like this question, John, because the independent assessment, you know, just even the words, it's not independent, okay? It's not independent right. uh, because it's something the insurance company is paying for. There's no arm's length. And they're the ones who are going to get the report, right? After you attend this assessment, whatever this is. But there are protections, Beth. And so the, the short answer is yes. Typically, the policy will say, if we want to have you assessed or we want to put you through a rehabilitation program and we need that assessment for that program, you have to comply with those requirements and only then will we continue paying your LTD benefit. So even though her own doctor and therapist is supporting that she's not capable of working, she still needs to cooperate unfortunately, with the insurance company's obligations, because that's really how they've embedded this language in the policies is to say, we're only giving you the benefit if you do what we ask you to do. And this is the point where we're asking you to do something. So independent assessment, though, can actually look at look like one of two things. Either it's an IME, which is an independent medical examination. And what that looks like is that you're being seen by an expert doctor And that doctor is being given a handful of questions about you, and they're going to answer those questions after they meet with you for an hour or two or less (laughs) sometimes. And they're going to assess you. If it's a mental health assessment, that's one thing. If it's a physical assessment, it's another thing. And they will provide not only background information to the insurance company, but also the expert's opinion about really whether or not you can work and whether other treatment for you would be helpful. Now, that is an IME, and I'm going to come back to that in a moment. The other type of assessment that we see is similar to the one that I was talking about at the top of our show with uh, the individual, Joey, that I spoke with. That type of assessment is meant to put a rehab plan in place. So they want, the insurance company wants to fill in gaps, perhaps, with treatment that you're not getting or offer you something that will then ultimately bring the claim to a close. I think either way, that's the signal Beth should get. So whether the insurance company is doing an assessment for rehab purposes or an independent medical exam to find out, are you simply totally disabled or not? Either way, they are putting money towards the file for a reason, John. Insurance companies don't like to pay these claims. They want to just take the premium and they want to make profits off of that, right? So the only way they do that is if they take in the money and they don't actually pay out. Mm -hmm. So you can read between the lines that if they are spending money on Beth's file, it's because they have calibrated. They've done a cost-benefit analysis, no doubt, 
to say, okay, we're going to spend $3,000 for this assessment, and that's going to mean we're going to save six months on this claim because we're going to be able to justify either cutting her off or putting her back at work perhaps even sooner than her own doctors are recommending. So what can you do to protect yourself? This is what I wanted to come back to. Number one, you want to cooperate. But number two, you want to make sure that you're providing full information to the assessor, to the expert, whoever it is, on all of the health issues. Even if, let's say, they pick a psychiatrist as the assessor, John, if Beth has physical symptoms as well, the psychiatrist doesn't have the expertise to comment on those physical symptoms, but those physical symptoms could have an impact on her mental health. So don't leave anything out. You want to make sure that you're describing all the symptoms, all of the health issues, you know, all the medication you might be taking, all the treatment efforts maybe that you have tried and that have not been successful. All of that is absolutely relevant. And then you want to get a copy of this report. The report typically will only go to the insurance company. They, if you ask them, they're actually supposed to send it to you and send it to your own doctor. Get a copy. Get a copy because I have seen time and again mistakes, errors, things that have been left out, things that have been misrepresented or mischaracterized in the report. And then the expert will rely on those you know, facts and things that you've said or not said to form the basis of their opinion. And if there are mistakes, it means that the opinion perhaps is not correct. And if the insurance company is going to rely on that opinion about what to do with your disability benefits, well, guess what? You really do want to see what it says and whether or not they got it right. And if they didn't get it right, whether because there's errors or not, if the conclusion doesn't align with what your own doctors are saying, well, then your own doctors hopefully have been made aware of this assessment and are prepared to rebut the assessment, to actually provide a response to it, to say, okay, well, you met with my patient for an hour, maybe two, uh, you missed all of these five things, we've already tried these treatment efforts, and my opinion remains that she is not capable of returning back to work just yet, or this is the prognosis and diagnosis in my opinion, and by the way, I've been treating Beth for the last five years, so mm -hmm. I'm in a better position to make these decisions and these opinions. So I think all of those protections are important, and you want some clarity from your disability insurer about where this assessment is happening, why is it happening, how long is it going to take, is it outside of your town or city, do you need transportation to that? There, there's you know housekeeping type things, right, John, that I talk about a lot, that the insurance companies don't always provide clarity around, which for a claimant can be very intimidating. Where do I need to be? What, when is this? What time? How far advanced notice do I have? All of those things, very, very important. And ultimately what may happen for Beth is that it brings her claim to an end. And so the key part there is if her own doctors are supporting that she is still disabled and not capable of working, regardless of what the insurance company's hired gun has said, she is entitled to disability benefits. Courts have been very clear about this. They are not going to prefer uh, an expert, a hired gun from the insurance company over what your own doctors are saying about your health. If you have a specialist especially involved who is very specific to the treatment and the health issues that you're dealing with, then that specialist, your treating specialist, will absolutely be preferred by a court as opposed to what the insurance company is saying. But what they bank on, John, is that they are papering their file. That's what they're doing, right? Insurance adjusters are, you know, box checkers. They paper their file, and this is how they do it to bring these claims to a close sooner than they should 
in order to save those dollars and, you know, allow the company to make record-breaking profits like they do every single year. So if I'm Beth, this is the kind of advice I would give. You know, there's another website, actually, John, that you mentioned, ltdfaq.ca. Really helpful memo in there about preparing for an IME. There's four or five points in there. I've actually done a blog post about this a couple years ago as well. Really, really helpful information out there if she's wondering, okay, look, what do I do? And at the end of the day, if the assessment is being used to deny her claim, hopefully she's going to give us a call and we'll see what we can do to assist her. Beth, nicely done. Really appreciate the correspondence and uh, providing a little content for our show at the same time, right? You've sent the email. Now you can always follow up with a phone call. I'm sure she's already called or working on it for sure. That number, one 855 We continue here the Disability Law Show. By the way, you can reach Tamar anytime by calling that number. Got a great team uh, with her as well. If it's only a chat you need or more, that is the place to go. So let me ask you this. If the insurer, Tamar, is asking for an assessment or that IME, uh, does this mean the LTD benefits are going to get cut off soon afterwards? I mean, is this kind of a precursor? They're kind of throwing a shot across the bowels to be pre- prepared for it or what? Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what I was getting at, John, when, wow. when I talked about a cost-benefit analysis. So uh, let me go back to that for a second because there's an insurer, and they know who they are, who routinely will do this, and they, it's in their files, John. When we get the claims file, which is the first step that we do once we get retained, there's usually four or five cost-benefit analyses contained in their claims files. And it actually puts cold, hard numbers to it. It puts down, this is what we're going to spend on this assessment or rehabilitation, and this is what we're going to save if we're able to bring the claim to a close in two months, three months, four months. So those tactics or strategies are absolutely driven by the goal of getting someone off claim. They would not be implementing these kinds of approaches if they weren't successful in doing it too, right? So imagine all of those people out there who might have gone through this kind of assessment they get the report they get the denial letter and they think oh okay i guess this is all i've got to do Uh, you know maybe i appeal i don't know what to do tomorrow but ultimately i just don't have the fight in me anymore it's just been too much and i'm still dealing with my health issues and so i think what's frustrating is that they get the insurance companies and adjusters get this tunnel vision And they get tunnel vision because, like I said, they are box checkers and they've got, you know, these little um, screenshots that they've got to populate and check off boxes. And in those boxes, one of them says, how soon will you be closing this claim? When is this person going to return to work or when is this claim going to end? And they need to update that projection every two or three months. And so when they put these kinds of strategies in place, these kinds of assessments and IMEs, that it allows them then to check that box off much sooner. And, you know, I'm convinced that then they get like a little, you know, tap on the shoulder, a little star or something, some little bonus at some end um, because they've done that successfully. But that is what's so frustrating about it because you tie that with what the policy says and it doesn't give a claimant a lot of options. They have to participate. Otherwise, they're just going to get cut off for non-compliance, like like the individual I spoke about at the top of the show. And you don't want that to happen. But by the same token, you want to ensure that you're making protections there and just alert your treatment providers. Hey, by the way, I've been on disability. You probably know this. I'm being put through an assessment or this rehab plan. I'm going to have to lean on you know my my people to make sure that my health is being protected here and providing timely reports to the insurance company or whatever other information they might need. But unfortunately, I've seen it quite a lot that they're not going to spend money on a file, John, if it means that they're not going to get the result. And the result for them is a closed claim. 
Let's move on. I think we got time for another email here, or at least get into it before we uh, before we break. This one actually came in from a uh, from a text from another radio show, so I want to read this to you uh, tomorrow. Mikey says, "Hey guys, uh, great show. Back in July, on my way to work, I was struck by a truck crossing the light. I went under the truck. Thankfully, uh, thankfully, I broke nothing, but ended up with a one to two centimeter cyst on my head." I applied for LTD and was denied. Thing is, I never got psych evaluation, and the doctor never cleared me to go back to work. I also suffer from major pain and headaches, major migraines, and because the truck ran over my foot, I can't walk properly. Long story short, I get $400 every two weeks. I can't live on that. What are my options and my rights? I already have a lawyer for the accident. Thanks. What do you think? Thanks, Mike. Okay, good. Well, look, I'm glad he's got a lawyer for the accident, John, but this is actually work that we also can do for Mike. In fact, we can run the accident claim file as well as running the LTD file. But regardless, he's asking, what are my rights here? And so he absolutely would be entitled to long-term disability benefits as well as what I think he's referencing here, which is income replacement benefits. The difference there is that that is a uh, no-fault benefit also an income benefit that you get from your own auto insurer if you're involved in a motor vehicle accident. So there are, when you're involved in a motor vehicle accident, there are different sources of income and supports that you can get. And so that's the distinction there that I want to make right off the top is that there's this avenue of no fault benefits and there's an avenue of LTD benefits and there's actually likely a third avenue of a tort claim, a claim against the negligent truck driver who caused all of Mike's injuries. So I want to talk, comment on a couple more things, John, but let's pick this up maybe after our next break. And we'll do that. Short break here now. Get back into uh, Mike's email. So stand by, pal. You can summon along anytime. It is uh, help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number 1-855-821-5900. Disability Law Show continues. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we're back. Disability Law Show. Love having you on the show today. Tuning in. You can always reach out afterwards for your own chat conversation with Tamar and her team. one 855 821 is how you go about doing that. You want to email help at disabilityrights.ca as well. Practicing a Pretty much across the country in Ontario and Alberta, BC. Always someone to reach out and talk to and help you in that uh, that regard as well. Okay, tomorrow back to Mike's email. Uh, text actually sent along on one of our previous radio shows. Basically hit by a truck. It didn't kill him, but he's pretty banged up. He's got some headaches, some other problems, can't walk. He gets about 400 bucks every two weeks. Not sustaining him. Wants to know what his options are. What do you think? Yeah, so what I was trying to get at before our break was what are the sources of compensation for Mike? That's really the core of his issue is, look, how do I, I can't survive on $400 every two weeks. Yep, I get that, Mike. So what else am I entitled to? Am I entitled to something else? And so, yes, he is absolutely entitled to long-term disability benefits in this situation. So if he was working uh, before, and I think he said he was on his way to work, actually, Mm -hmm. when he was involved in this accident, then I suspect that he is entitled to long-term. What I worry about is has, oh, he said he applied and he he was denied. Sorry, John, I I hadn't uh, looked at that section. So he had applied and was denied. I want to see that denial letter. I want to see why the insurance company thinks in a profile like this that Mike would not be entitled to long-term. I think that what may happen is, you know, you look at these motor vehicle claims and sometimes the disability insurer, the LTD insurer, 
will say, well, look, we know he's going to get that $400 a week from the accident benefits from the no-fault benefit insurance. And so maybe we just resist this claim so we're not down the path of having to top him up, which is what they would absolutely be required to do. Okay. So there is an intersection between long-term disability and these income replacement benefits. And typically the first payor is the long-term. They actually are the ones who pay first and then they get credit for anything else you might be able to get, including this income replacement benefit. But there's usually a gap. And so when you're in a situation like Mike, you want to make sure that you apply in all these different sources of income so that you know that you're getting access to everything, right? That's number one. And the other element of it is, is that, you know, you've got to pursue all of your legal rights. So you have a legal right, Mike, to long-term, you have a legal right to no-fault benefits if those come to an end, and you have a legal right for pain and suffering and other losses, including income losses against the the motor vehicle driver, the truck driver who actually struck him. And so when you are dealing with this kind of a situation, you want to make sure that everyone, all the different elements are aware, right? All the different insurance companies who might be involved are aware, everyone's put on notice and that you're making the right applications. Now, we also will help people in situations like this with their accident benefits claims. So what is that? When you're involved in motor vehicle accident, as I said, you can apply for certain benefits from your own auto insurer. And that will include the income component that we've already talked about, but it will also include potentially uh, dollars for rehabilitation and medication Mm -hmm. and perhaps things that you require around the house. And so those additional compensation measures are also important to exercise because, you know, maybe your work plan only covers you for a handful of physio sessions. And maybe that's not enough. I mean, definitely, you know, looking at Mike's injuries, he, it looks like he needs a lot of health treatment, psychiatric, psychological, you know, physical, all of those things. And so you want to make sure that you're accessing these different sources and avenues so that you're not out of pocket. And if you are, then that's where (laughs) claim number three would come in, John. Very complicated, these sorts of situations, but you can understand that this is why you need the right lawyer so that you're running these files properly, you're issuing the claims properly and getting the maximum compensation from all these sources. Because here's what I've seen insurers do sometimes. They'll say, look, um, because you're entitled to say workers' compensation benefits, we're Mm going to deny your LTD claim because workers' compensation should be paying you at 100%. And so we're denying you LTD because we wouldn't have to pay you anything anyway. Okay, just as an example. Right. And this can happen as well in a situation like Mike where he's getting this $400 every two weeks and LTD will say, well, you know, we don't really have to pay you because, you know, the top up wouldn't be much anyway. Well, guess what? That's totally wrong. (laughs) That thinking is absolutely incorrect. You know, they should be approving and taking a credit for it. And if there's no shortfall, then fine. They can say we're not paying you anything, but it's wrong to say you're not entitled to it. Because if the income benefit ends or the workers' compensation ends, then guess what? Then LTD should be paying you at 100% of whatever you're insured for under that plan. So the long and short of it is that Mike does have some options. I think he should absolutely be considering pursuing his LTD claim further. And if the current lawyer that he has is not helping him do that, well, guess what? We're only a phone call away. So I think that I would suggest to him to make sure that he's getting all of the treatment avenues as well as getting the right representation so that he can maximize his compensation. Because it certainly doesn't sound like his recovery is going to be very quick. And it's if it's prolonged, you want to make sure that you're compensated for the time that you're off until hopefully you get to a point where you're capable of returning back. 
Because Mike's injury stems from a, an MVA, a motor vehicle accident, will it be looked at it through a different lens by the adjuster or no, as opposed to a different type of disability claim? Uh, so, so I have my theories about this one. Um, I'm going to say yes. Okay, my my experience with this suggests to me that adjusters, insurance adjusters, are very cynical individuals. Okay, John, and and they look at these disability claims like everyone is not being truthful, or everyone is coming at this in a way where they just they want to just get money and not work. It's not true. That's not. It's absolutely untrue. Every claimant I speak with legitimately wants to be better and get back to work. But because these adjusters seem to have this cynical approach, I think that cynicism is even greater when the claim comes from a motor vehicle situation because of all the different compensation avenues that I described, right? When you're in an MVA, there are various sources and rights that you have to these sources of compensation. And so adjusters will look at this with kind of like a, you know, a, a weird eye and they look at it and say, oh, I don't know. I don't know about this. Um, you know, he... Mike could put, they could see that Mike could potentially be motivated to not return back to work because he's getting compensation from these other avenues. It's not true. The compensation is never going to make you whole, but I have seen adjusters take that kind of approach. And so you want to resist that with the adjuster as best as you can. Make sure that you're being open and communicating with all of your different treatment measures, provide all of the symptoms that you're going through and what's being done from a health perspective. And you hope that that strange eye that they're looking at because your claim comes from a motor vehicle Mm -hmm. is not going to resist what they should be doing, which is legitimately paying legitimate disability claims. Mikey, appreciate the uh, the reach out, man. Thank you so much for the email or the text. Anyway, here's the number to reach out even further to tomorrow and the team to uh, continue that uh, that conversation. More answer, uh, answers are in, in your near future. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Paula, we see you there. We'll get to your email next. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. And that's coming right up. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we are back here, Disability Law Show. John Scholes, Tamar Agopian, it is Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP. That is the firm where you reach Tamar and continue the conversation on your own time. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca or simply disabilityrights.ca will jettison you over to the firm website so take advantage of that when you uh, you feel uh, it's fit. Uh, we'll get the Paula now email says guys been on LTD since uh, December 2022 my insurance provider regularly requests medical information from my doctors at this point they have more than 500 pages of medical information the case manager also contacts me by telephone every month for an update I find these calls very upsetting as my situation is complex and my progress is slow. I wish they would call my doctors for an update rather than grilling me with questions. Any advice for dealing with these calls? Can I request that they contact my doctors instead? Paul, I'm so sorry you're experiencing this. And the the worst part is, John, she's not the only one. She's not the only one. This is a very typical tactic from adjusters and the, the sort of what I call hounding of hounding. information, like how much, right? How much more information do you need adjuster to show that I am disabled and cannot work? Please issue my benefit. Um, but look, LTD disability benefits, they are a month to month benefit and it's not always communicated to claimants that that's how it works. So the adjuster actually has to make a click 
in their systems to say, yep, I approve the claim. I'm going to issue that additional month of LTD benefits. And they are put to some pretty strict requirements in terms of justifying releasing those those monies and making sure they have what's in their file that's needed to release that LTD benefit. I'm not sympathetic with it at all, though, John. So don't take from what I'm saying that I that I care at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I think their systems do not align with the reality of most disability claimants, which is that they don't all fit in a neat box, and they cannot all be satisfied month over month necessarily. Sometimes it is a wait-and-see approach. I mean, I, I can't count the number of times I've gone to the doctor myself, and the doctor's like, look, let's see. I'll see you in two months, right? And so... If it was significant enough and I wasn't capable of working, then yes, I should theoretically be entitled to disability benefits, like it sounds like Paula has been on claim for a number of months now, she says December of 2022. I think what's troubling me most is the fact that the contact with the adjuster itself is causing symptoms, right? Is making her feel uncomfortable, it's making, it's difficult, it's upsetting her. I think that if it is if let's say she's got a mental health component to her claim and those dealings with the adjuster are actually, you know, preventing her from progressing or it's stepping her back from the progress that she's otherwise making in her treatment, then I think it is fair for the therapist to write a note and say to the adjuster, look, what you're putting my patient through is, you know, interfering with our progress with her health and her treatment. I, you know, the calls need to be either scheduled or they need to be reduced in terms of time and length. Um, if you require anything further, please write to my office and I can provide that information. That is absolutely fair if it's interfering that significantly with Paula's well-being. Otherwise, you know, she asks us, you know, can I just ask the adjuster to contact my doctors directly? Well, well, Paula, you've already authorized the insurance company to do that, actually. Most people don't realize when they submit those forms for LTE, there's all this fine print at the back end where they ask you to sign. And in that fine print, John, there's a section that allows you, that, that gives, you are giving consent rather, that allows the adjuster to then contact your doctors directly. It's an authorization of sorts. Now, that contact typically is done in writing with medical updates. It's different than the ask, which is my adjuster can just speak to my doctor directly. Most adjusters won't do that. Some will suggest maybe a doctor-to-doctor -doctor call, so they'll hire an expert on their end and have that expert speak to your own doctor directly about what's going on. But that's not necessarily always a good thing because, first of all, you don't necessarily know what your doctor's going to say, and second of all, it loses that direct contact with you for you to be able to explain those symptoms and what you're suffering day-to-day, -day, which is very compelling having the adjuster have that documented from you directly also really, really helps. And so I'd be careful with the idea of just having the insurance company have unfettered access. So in other words, no limits to their ability to contact your doctor and speak to your doctor directly. Again, the caveat being though, that if it's harming Paul's health so much that she's not recovering, she's not making the progress that she should with her own treatment providers, then I do think that some measures should be put in place to protect Paula from what sounds like fairly aggressive adjudication, especially when there's hundreds of pages of medical, John, 500 pages of medical that yeah. supports that she's disabled, right? So it's not insignificant. 
So the last thing I want to say about Paula's situation is that she absolutely does have rights to an ongoing entitlement to LTD benefits. And so I think the fact that she's doing everything that she can is a huge credit to her and her commitment to her recovery and her entitlement to LTD. So if the insurance company ignores all of this information, all of the pages of medical and ends up closing out her claim uh, improperly, perhaps because they weren't getting every little thing they needed or every little contact point that they wanted, then that absolutely forms a proper basis for Paula to pursue her legal rights. And not only just for her LTD benefits, but even potentially more compensation if the adjuster's um, tactics and efforts were offside from their duty of good faith to her. Paula, we hope that answers most of it. If not, you can always follow up with a phone call, right? one 821 5900 We just got a couple minutes left tomorrow. I want to get a couple of these. There is a website built for you to use anytime you're not listening to the show called ltdfaq.ca. It's exactly how it sounds. Short, concise, easy to read FAQs about the world of LTD. I want to pull a couple of questions from it as well tomorrow. Uh, first one is, what is a cola and how do I know if I have one? We're not talking about the one that comes out of a can you pour over ice cream different kind of cola. What is it, Bob? What do you think? I love that. I love that, John. So cola stands for cost of living adjustment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in this vein of like, you know, crazy inflation that we've been seeing uh, out there, that's similar to that in the sense that the LTD benefit is supposed to have a cost of living increase every year to align with inflation but not all policies have it. So how do you know if you have one? Well, you've got to look at your benefit summary from your employer if you've got an employment group plan. If you've got a private plan, you want to look at the cover page and see what you're covered for LTD and whether it includes a little notation for COLA or CPI or indexation or something else. And if you're not sure, it's absolutely okay to ask HR, by the way. Uh, I've seen that sometimes people will sign up for their group plans and then they're given different options, especially for LTD. I'm going to put my insurance broker hat on for one second and say, if you have the option to get a COLA, pay for the extra for the COLA. It's really, really important because think of a situation when if you're on claim for a year or two or three or five or 10, your LTD benefit will be crystallized from the moment that you stop working. And so you really do want to have that included year over year if you're going to be on claim for a long time with the insurer. And we are out of time, so we'll pick it up next time. In the meantime, if you want to send a note along to tomorrow, you can do so. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And one more time, that phone number to reach out anytime, one 821 5900 We are done. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.